This morning, we're going to look at the seventh and final church in this series, uh, the church in Laodicea, and we will wrap up this series. That's as far as we're going. Laodicea was located uh, roughly 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia in the Lycus Valley. It was part of a triad of cities, which included Colossae and Heropolis. Um, it was situated on a high plateau above the valley, and it was kind of uh, impregnable. It, you, you really couldn't get access to it if you were a raider or an enemy. It was kind of hard to get into because of the way that it was situated. It was founded by the Seleucid ruler um, Antiochus II, probably a, somewhere before 253 BC. He actually named it after his wife. His wife, her name was Laodicea, apparently. Uh, its original settlers were uh, primarily Syrian. They come out of Syria, uh, but historical evidence shows that, that it had a very, very large Jewish population. In 62 BC, Governor Flaccus stopped the exporting of any gold out of that city. I mean, there was just a lot of gold in the city and a lot of gold going out of the city, and he just kind of made that illegal. And since Jews paid their yearly temple tax in gold, they attempted to send a secret shipment like in the middle of the night or early in the morning to Jerusalem. They tried to get around the law and send their gold offering to Jerusalem or temple tax, but unfortunately it was discovered and confiscated before it actually got out of the city. And the amount, that's the point, the amount of gold seized indicates that there were thousands and thousands of Jewish families in Laodicea. And they were required to give a certain amount per head or per man in the, in the house, and it just reflected an enormous amount. I think maybe 7,000 males or something to that degree. So that tells us how many Jews lived in the city. And Laodicea was just ex extremely prosperous. Um, it was a banking center. Uh, it had a black wool industry that was just unlike anything. And then it was very, very well known for its medicine. It had a lot of, uh, it had a medical facility or college there. And so medicine came out of that place. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero, maybe you're familiar with that name, Cicero, he did all of his banking there in Laodicea. So that gives you an idea of the importance of its banking for some prominent figure like that to be banking there. It's like a big Wells Fargo, I guess. Uh, the black wool uh, that they produced there, it was made into super high-end clothing like the Armani of the first century. And it was also woven into luxurious carpets and rugs and things of that nature. So its black wool industry was phenomenal. And then obviously, as I mentioned, it had a medical school, and that medical school developed a very popular eye salve uh, that was exported and sold throughout the Greco-Roman world. In fact, I think that's probably their number one export at that time, was this eye salve. It was way better than Visine. <laughs> the city's wealth was so extremely great that after a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, it required absolutely no financial aid from Rome. In fact, Rome came in and said, we would like to help you rebuild your city as they had done for Sardis and other cities. And the Laodiceans basically told Nero, no thanks, we don't need your money, we have plenty of money, and we can rebuild our own city. So that gives you an idea of the kind of wealth here. This, this was the Beverly Hills of the first century. It had shops and stores and markets and an agora, and it was just um, a capitalistic paradise. Maybe we would call it that. Laodicea was also known for its horrific water. It had terrible, terrible water, second only to the water in Modesto. Its own source, it had some kind of source of its own, it was just too polluted to use and to use the water from it. So it had to bring in water from about five miles away through uh, what they would have called then an aqueduct. And all it was was a series of like 10-inch pipes 
10-inch pipes running five miles long. And the pipes were made from stone and clay. And uh, Dennis might be able to attest to this since he's a, a plumbing expert, but stone and clay will release impurities and toxins into the water. And uh, so by the time this water made it from its source five miles away and traveled through all of these, these pipes it, and got to the main water tower in the city, the water was just filthy. Um, it was foul smelling like probably a rotten egg. And you know, whenever I smell that, I'm not going to eat whatever it is that's in front of me or drink it. That's like the worst smell ever. And the water was tepid. What does tepid mean? It means it was lukewarm. It wasn't cold and refreshing. It wasn't like hot spring refreshing. It was in between and just um, hardly palatable. And if you visit the ruins of Laodicea, which are there today, they're near the Turkish city of uh, Deni Zili, you will see stacks and piles of ancient water pipes. And these water pipes are lined with so much calcium carbonate they almost look like an artery that has been completely, almost completely closed in by the plaque. And so you can imagine getting your water through pipes that have all of that carbonate and, and just nasty residue and things in there. And it's just amazing. I watched a video and it. They showed these pipes and I thought, wow, those things were almost completely closed up by all of the impurities and things. So it just produced a, a terrible water that was uh, just absolutely disgusting. In terms of religion, Laodicea's main deity appears to be a idol or false god called Menkaru. Uh, Menkaru was the alleged Phrygian moon god. Um, ancient carvings of him, which you can look at today online, they depict him with a crescent moon above his shoulders. And uh, does that cause you to think of maybe another religion that's very prominent today, very well-known, that features a crescent moon? That would be Islam. Um, uh, the Islamicists or Muslims claim to worship the true god Allah, which is the Arabic translation of the word God, but they actually do worship a version of the Babylonian or Mesopotamian moon god. And that's why there's a crescent there. Of course, they would never admit to that. But Menkaru was kind of an early type of Islamic false god. And Men was his actual uh, principal name, right? That was the name of this. I mean, you know, you create your own gods. Why not just call your god Men? He's there to serve men, so just name your god Men. Why, why give him, you know, the name Zeus or any of these other names? They just called their god Men because they had fashioned a god like Men. So his name was Men. And Karu was not his name. It actually identified his temple, which was located between Laodicea and a small town outside of it called Karura. And people called on men Karu for healing and, and for safety and for prosperity and those sorts of things. And men Karu was actually a very popular idol god throughout Asia Minor. So he was worshipped in many other cities, probably in the cities that we've looked at. He might not have been as popular as the Caesars or some of the Greco-Roman gods, but he was popular in Laodicea. That was the god they... In prosperity, he's the god of prosperity. I mean, and the city was prosperous, so make the connection. And then lastly, you had the church in Laodicea. The New Testament does not indicate who actually planted this church. Uh, we know that it wasn't Paul, the Apostle Paul, because he did not go through that city during any of his missionary journeys, so it, it couldn't have been him. Uh, it may have been planted by Paul's faithful co-worker by the name of Epaphras, uh, since he planted the church in Colossae, which was only 10 miles away. So the historical view is that maybe Epaphras planted this church, and it may have been pastored by Philemon's son, Archippus, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That's uh, 
Philipp, or not Philippians, Philemon, pardon me. Philemon only has one chapter. So it'd be verses one and two where you see that Archippus is related to Philemon, that's his son. But we, we think that maybe he was the pastor of that church. He was actually exhorted after uh, Paul discusses the church at Laodicea to a degree in Colossians 4, 16 and 17. He admonishes or exhorts Archippus to finish his ministry. So it seems like Archippus is tied to uh, the sentence beforehand, which is describing the church at Laodicea. So Archippus was probably the pastor. In fact, the 4th century apostolic constitutions actually names Archippus as the bishop of Laodicea, and bishop is a synonymous term with elder. So he's probably the pastor. Was he the pastor at this time? I, I don't think so. I, in fact, I know he wasn't because this is about 40 years later. Um, two Sundays ago, I questioned the view that says that Laodicea was the worst church of the seven. You remember? Uh, and I, I told you that I thought Sardis was the worst church because it was spiritually dead. And it makes sense, right? You have a church that's around and it's lukewarm. Well, that doesn't sound attractive or good, but you have a church that's called dead. I mean, do the logic, right? I repeatedly said over and over, how could a lukewarm church be worse than a dead church? Dead is dead. Well, I have to admit, I think I was wrong. I think my opinion was wrong. After studying this letter to this church, um, I, I do agree with those and the consensus view that this was the worst church. So um, give yourself a point and take one away from me. Because I know there's a few people in the back going, I told you, I, he was wrong. I knew he was wrong. I studied the letter, and it's, it's like, wow, okay, so there's, there's some things that I, that I missed. And here's why. Here's why Laodicea was the supreme bad apple of the bunch. Talking about Sardis again, Sardis was, was a dead church, according to the Lord Jesus. But we know that, and Jesus knew this, it wasn't entirely dead. It had a believing remnant there, right? And that is whom he appealed to, and that is who he really wrote the letter to. Those are the ones who had not soiled their garments by returning to the world, and they were the ones that he appealed to and instructed in verses 2 and 3. And they were the ones that he praised in verse 4 of this chapter. Now, the letter to the church in Laodicea, however, contains... No such appeal, no instruction or, or praise from Christ to a believing remnant. There is none of that in here. There is, there is no, there's a few of you here, listen to me carefully. You don't even see anything like that in this letter, and you do in the letter to Sardis. Why is that? Why is there no praise in this letter? Why is there no appeal? Why... Uh, What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that this church had no believing remnant that Christ could appeal to. It had no believing remnant that Christ could instruct. It had no believing remnant that Christ could praise for its faithfulness. It just didn't exist here. This church had zero true Christians, zero real believers. Why? Had they all died? No. No true Christian can die spiritually. Why? They had all left. They had all left this church. When it began to go down south and made compromise after compromise, especially the compromise of the Scripture, whatever true Christians remained there eventually left that church. And guess what? If you're part of a church that's going away from Scripture and starting to engage in all of these things, you go and you graciously admonish and correct the leadership, and if they tell you to go fly a kite, go fly a kite. Get out of there. Run for your life. And I think that's what happened with the remaining true Christians here. And I'll tell you what, the most damning piece of evidence in this letter we see in verse 20 where Christ says that he stands at the door and knocks. What does that mean? It means that he is not in that church. Okay? He is on the outside of that church. He's not in, but by grace, he's wanting in. 
And that is the huge, huge indicator right there that he's not in it and that it is, it is dead, or as I was saying to myself the other day, it had been sort of spiritually decapitated, and my son Ryan made fun of me when I said that. It had no head with a capital H. To the church in Ephesus, Christ threatened to remove its lampstand if it refused to repent of its love loss. There was no lampstand to remove in the church at Laodicea. Why? Because it had already been removed. This church was thoroughly dead. No true believers there whatsoever. And, and this is why Laodicea was worse than Sardis, the supreme bad apple of the bunch. It just had no remnant, no head. It was completely spiritually dead. It was um, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, had departed. What drove out the remaining Christians and essentially destroyed this church? I mean, was there a specific error, heresy, apostasy? Yeah, it was an early form of Gnosticism, I've talked about Gnosticism before. Gnosticism basically means secret knowledge. Um, Jezebel from Thyatira, she promoted a type of Gnosticism that denied the importance of physical matter, and which means that you could just do whatever you want with your body, right? And so that's Gnosticism, a, a form of it. Hey, physical matter doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit. So do whatever you want with your physical body. And when she would teach it from the pulpit, I don't know how she got into the pulpit, she would say, you can, you can do whatever you want with your body, including sleep with me. Terrible immorality, sexual immorality, and, and just idolatry that was promoted through her version of Gnosticism. But the Gnosticism in Laodicea was a different strand. Um, like all heresies, there's different versions of them. Uh, the one in Laodicea had or featured bad Christology, um, which, is a, which would mean a bad theology pertaining to Christ. And its biggest issue in terms of Christology is that it, it didn't have the right Christ. It denied the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ. And, and that was its bad Christology. It exalted you know, the Son of Man, the, the, the Christ that, that is fully man, but it totally rejected his deity, his, his godness. And this particular strand of Gnosticism had been around for a while because nearly 40 years earlier, it attempted to infiltrate the church at Colossae. Um, maybe you've wondered why in the very first chapter, I think beginning in verse 15, where, where Paul goes into this unbelievable doctrinal theological statement about the deity of Christ. Why did he do that? Because he was combating that heresy that was trying to go into that church, a flat-out denial of the deity of Christ. Yeah, it's in chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 15 through 20, right? He is the image of God, the exact imprint. You know the statement. It was written because he was combating that heresy that was trying to come into Colossae. He was only 10 miles away. That triad, Heropolis and Colossae and Laodicea, were all being attacked by that heresy at the same time. And this is why even Paul instructed the Colossians to make sure that his letter to them made it over to Laodicea so that it could be read there. I'm not sure if that ever happened because at some point the church at Laodicea embraced that terrible heresy. The true Christians left. It was over for them. So the church in Laodicea was dead as a doornail. It was spiritually flatlined, but this did not stop Christ from sending it a letter. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This is the end of chapter 3. I think it's good that we pray before we actually dive in and get to work. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Father, we humble ourselves now and thank you for um, how we've been able, by grace, to worship you so far through singing and, and through reading, the reading of Scripture and, and learning that it is complete and through prayers and through our giving and just all these marvelous ways. And now we desire to worship you through your word as we pay attention and, and listen and take notes um, and more particularly as we apply and live out. That will be 
worshipful to you. I pray that you are glorified during this time. Um, Help us to understand the truth about Laodicea. And we don't want to just look at it like um, some distant thing, but these problems of, of this kind of Gnosticism and this kind of deadness in churches is very prevalent today and probably present here among some. And so help us to to learn the truth here and to apply the truth and to live the truth through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So we commit our time to you now and we love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've divided this passage into three sections. Yeah, I'm going to be giving you some more letters. Um, I used to teach like that all the time. It's just, I don't know, an easier way to format and to think through the text. But I'm going to give you four C's today. Let's begin with the, uh, the first C. Number one, the correspondent, verse 14. The text says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and listen to this, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Stop right there. Like the other letters, this one is also addressed to the angel, or as it translates, the Greek word angelos can also mean messenger. So that's, this is not an actual angel overseeing this church. This is a messenger to that church. I've told you this several times. But like the other letters, it is addressed to the angel representative or messenger uh, who was to deliver this letter to the church. Yet, the big difference between here and all the other letters, the other six, since this church was totally spiritually dead, flatlined, this messenger had to come from outside of the church. Maybe the messenger that would bring this letter would come from the church of Colossae, or maybe from the church of Philadelphia that was a little further away, or maybe from Heropolis. We don't know. But just think about it. The messengers have been, in the other churches, they were representatives who were still spiritually alive and competent and faithful. And, but this church doesn't have that. So this messenger had to probably come from outside of the church. Now, to, to expose and combat their heresy, right? Because they had a bad Christology, they rejected the deity of Christ. To combat that, Christ begins by delivering a super powerful theological statement that affirms his deity and authority even over this apostate, unregenerate church. He begins by calling himself the, the Amen. Amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word meaning truth. Okay, so when you see the word amen there, think truth. And it appears twice in Isaiah 65, 16, where it says that God is the amen, or in English, the God of truth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the text says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So it is through the person and work of Christ that all of God's promises and, and covenants are fulfilled and guaranteed. That's the meaning of that 2 Corinthians text. Um, All of the Old Testament promises of forgiveness, mercy, loving kindness, grace, hope, and eternal life, they're all bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. What am I getting at this? When Christ calls himself the amen, he is saying that, that he is the God of truth. He is calling himself the God of truth. And not only that, he is calling himself the confirmer of all God's promises. Okay, That is what he is saying by saying, I am the Amen. I am the God of truth of that Isaiah text, of the entire Bible, of creation, and I am the confirmer of all of his promises. And he also called himself the faithful and true witness. Since Christ is the amen, the God of truth, everything he says is faithful and true. In other words, he is the true and faithful witness. And scripture comes directly from him. He reveals 
right? So he, he is the faithful and true witness because he is the God of truth, the amen. And that means that what he writes after this and communicates to the church at Laodicea is, is absolutely true of them. He doesn't want any of them to think that they are yet somehow spiritually alive and okay. He's about to give them a prescription, right? He's about to, to give them what's going on. He's about to tell them what is wrong there. And, and so he is establishing his authority as the God of truth so that when they get to his correction or his concerns or whatever, they realize it's coming from the highest authority. And lastly, Christ calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, a lot of people have fouled up this statement, and I can understand why. The English does a horrific job of translating out of the Greek what's actually meant here. This is one of those areas where our English language kind of falls a bit short. Uh, and uh, I would just say the English translation is somewhat ambiguous, and it is a bit misleading. And as a result, false teachers seeking to deny Christ's deity, such as Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Oneness Pentecostals, and there's just so many, there's too many to list. They all use this verse and verses like it, like in Colossians. They use it to, to attempt to totally deny his deity and to say that he was like the first thing or being to be created in all of creation. The, the issue is there's just no ambiguity in the, in the Greek text at all. There's just nothing there like that. It's the English that falls short. The, word, uh, the Greek word arche, uh, for beginning there, we see it in the, in the English as beginning. It, it does not mean that Christ was the first person God created, but rather Christ himself is the source and origin of all creation. In other words, arche means that he is, he is the one who began creation through the word of his power, right? All things were made to him and through him and for him. That's, that's what it means, and I think that uh, people that mistranslate that, they've been corrected graciously and kindly, but they refuse to submit to the clear word of God, and so that's, that's on them. He is, Christ is the amen, the, the God of truth, and he is the confirmer of God's promises. He is the faithful and true witness to the word of God. I mean, he is the word made flesh, after all, and he is the arche. He is the source of creation, right? And maybe I'll cite something for you here. By, for by him all things were created. For by him, not he wasn't the first one to be created, they came through him. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him him, right? And listen to this statement. This is, again, this is from Colossians, where Paul is combating this heresy 40 years earlier. And, and this little statement here, listen to this, and he is before all things. In other words, he existed before all things were created. He can't possibly be created. He existed before creation, right? You can read that on your own time, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, 16, 17, 18. It's all there. So that's the first See, we have the correspondent, that is Christ. He is the God of truth. He is the truth teller. He is the beginning, which means he fashioned creation. It all came through him. What has he done here? If you want to boil it down, he has established his deity, the very error that destroyed this place, that destroyed Laodicean church. Now let's move to the second C. And that would be the concern. And we see this in verses 15 through 17. Here's where Christ launches into his concerns and his correction. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Notice the exclamation point. The NASB does a better job. It kind of says, I prefer that you would be either one. 16, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. And some translations actually say, I vomit you. This is a puke. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. Listen to this. For you say, you think of yourself, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. And listen, not realizing that you are, however, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. That is by far the harshest 
words in any of the seven letters, once again, me admitting my failure on that a few weeks ago. I mean, that is just, that just is, that is an obliterating, obliterating set of statements. Since there was nothing uh, and, and no one to praise in this dead, unregenerate church, Christ launches directly into his concerns, right? In all the other letters, there was some kind of praise there before he gets to the bad stuff. We don't see that here. He just goes right into it. Spiritually alive people are, are hot, okay? They're hot. In other words, they're fervent for their love for the Lord. He's using metaphor here. So think in terms of someone who's a truly spiritual person, who's truly in Christ. They are going to be hot in their love and affection for Christ, right? They would be considered hot. Uh, they, they exhibit the transforming work of the Holy Spirit and, and a, even a passion for reaching the lost, right? They're passionate about reaching the lost. They want the lost to experience what they have experienced and are experiencing. And yet, spiritually dead people are cold and, and they openly reject the truth of God's word. They openly reject the gospel. They don't hide any of that. They just say that that's for you. I have my own spirituality. That's for you. That's the idea of, of cold, right? Spiritually cold people just reject. And they, you might describe them as having no interest for the things of God or the, the true things of God according to Scripture. They have no interest in Christ. They have no interest in the church. And guess what? The Laodiceans landed squarely in the middle. They were neither hot nor cold. They were in the middle. Now, they couldn't be hot because they were still unregenerate or spiritually dead. In other words, they hadn't been born again by the Holy Spirit. These people were spiritually dead. They were Ephesians 2. You know, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. So they, they couldn't possibly be hot because they weren't alive spiritually. But they also didn't qualify as being cold because they had not publicly rejected the truth. This was not a group of people who went around denying Jesus. This is a group of people who went around claiming to love and know Jesus. Okay, these were religious people. And, and I tell you what, if we, if we had crossed paths with any of them back then, if we'd been around during these days and had any conversation with them, if we hadn't got to the point of asking them about the deity of Christ and then finding out their, their true colors, uh, we would have been led to think that these were real legitimate believers. They had the earmarks and, and certain characteristics and things that just appeared to be so utterly Christian. They weren't going around acting like a bunch of heretics or apostates. They were seemingly Christian. So they weren't cold like your classic atheist who just comes out and says there's no God. They weren't like that at all. Instead, they were pious hypocrites claiming to love the Lord while secretly holding a false heretical view of the Lord they claimed to love, right? They had bad Christology. They maintained an, an outward show of faith and devotion to the Lord but like the Pharisees, theirs was a self-satisfied, self-righteous religion. They had the appearance of godliness, but in fact denied its power, 2 Timothy 3.5. Christ parallels their spiritual condition with the Laodiceans' water and financial wealth, right? He, metaphor, he uses a metaphor and parallels their condition to the water situation and the wealth situation in that city. I mean, Christ is just so utterly brilliant in the way that he brings correction. He brings you into the context that you live within and uses the things around you to get your attention. And that's what he does here. He parallels their spiritual condition with Laodicea's water and financial wealth. They thought they were spiritually alive, vibrant and healthy, but they were what? Like the water, polluted foul, tepid, lukewarm. Their false piety was so utterly distasteful and displeasing to Christ, his, his only response was to what? Spit them out of his mouth, vomit them up. They were so distasteful to them. There was nothing holy and pleasing about them to them. Uh, they, they weren't a, a fine vintage wine. They were Boone's Farm. They tasted horrible. 
They were terrible in his mouth, so to speak. They were like the water. They were like the water. Some of you are smiling at the Boone's Farm because that was your high school beverage. Yeah, I drank the stuff, unfortunately. It's not wine. They thought they were spiritually prosperous, right? Hey, we're, we're making advancements spiritually. We are, we're spiritually cool. We don't, we don't have any spiritual needs. Why? It was their, their Gnostic knowledge, that secret Gnostic knowledge that sort of you know, gave them this sense of being okay spiritually, but it also blinded them in a way, and they were actually oblivious to their true condition, and, and according to Christ, they were just wretched and Pitiable and poor, blind and, and naked. Just a scary, scary kind of heresy that would lead you to believe that you are spiritually okay. It just has enough Christianity in, enough Christianity in it to make you think that you're okay while yet you are actually dead and wretched and really a disaster. I like what MacArthur said. This is a longer paragraph from him. And maybe you've been wondering why I keep quoting him. Well, because the idea for this series came from a book he wrote. So that's why I keep coming back to um, things that he wrote in his book about these, uh, these churches. And he wrote this, spiritually speaking, he's referring to Laodicea, spiritually speaking, this is the worst state a person can be in. And he says, no one is harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. Now that's a, let's just stop there. That is a marvelous statement. That is a kind of a mind-blowing statement. How would a false Christian be more difficult to reach than an atheist or any of that? I did something about being lukewarm. It's difficult to reach a lukewarm person. It's difficult to reach one who thinks they're a Christian and yet they're not. And when you question them and challenge them, what do they say? I'm a Christian. Well, no, you're not. Yes, I am. You can see it. Maybe you've experienced that. He goes on to say, "No one." Uh, I'll repeat that. No one is harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. Then he says this, It would be far better to be an atheist or completely ignorant of the church and the gospel. Truly, anything would be better than the Laodicean self-righteous hypocrisy. Their apostasy was all-encompassing. Uh, they knew the truth about Christ but denied his deity. They knew the truth about God but worshipped a God of their own design. Such smug spiritual self-confidence characterizes whole denominations today. It likewise characterizes many supposedly Christian institutions and universities and seminaries. They believe they are spiritually rich and that their knowledge sets them above and apart from the hoi polloi but they have no appreciation for how nauseating they are to the Lord they profess. Wow. Is his statement not true? You have entire denominations that exist today that deny either the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ or some aspect of the gospel or what have you. They exist, and yet when you bring the gospel to them, they say, no, we have the gospel. And I can't think of a worse deception than that some, somehow Satan has this ability to, to cause a non-Christian to think and believe they are a Christian, thus locking them into their heresy in such a way that they can't hear the true gospel because their default is to say that we already have the true gospel. That's terrifying. It's terrifying that there are entire denominations out there in seminaries and colleges and universities that claim to be Christian who are Laodicean. And sadly, it's everywhere. It is everywhere today. You will see this everywhere. Now let's move to the third C. That was his concern. Now we look at number three, the counsel that he gave them. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Christ says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. <laughs> He's offering what will make them, make them actually rich. And he says, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those, and listen to what he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
And he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And by the way, that is not the door of your heart. I'll talk about that in a minute. That is a ridiculous notion. Rather than actually judging and wiping these unredeemed hypocrites off the mat, and just think about that, they're not just unredeemed unbelievers. They are pretending to be, so they're hypocritical. And if you've studied the Gospels, you realize very quickly that it seems like the sin that Christ hated more than any other, and that's kind of weird to say, but was hypocrisy. And yet, these are unregenerate, unbelieving hypocrites masquerading as Christians, and yet he could have obliterated them. He could have, with with one wink, wiped them off the face of the earth, right? And yet he, what? Graciously offered them genuine salvation. That's what he's offered them here when you boil it all down. Playing on three features the city of Laodicea was most noted for and proud of its wealth, its wool industry, and its production of eye salve, Christ counseled them to buy three things from them that symbolize the redemption they so desperately needed. Now, before we analyze each one of these things, we need to note that these things cannot actually be bought or earned. I know that's what Christ said, but We interpret that wrongly when we think that we can attain these things somehow through purchase or through merit. They cannot be done that way. Uh, These things are given to to spiritually bankrupt sinners who come to Christ for salvation through faith alone. So these things cannot be merited or purchased, all right? It's important that you understand that. He was playing off of another text in Isaiah that says, come Those of you who have no money, come buy and eat. Well, how can people who have no money come buy and eat? Well, people are so accustomed to going to the markets and doing their things. He's saying you can come and buy without any money at all. You receive by faith. That's the meaning of that Isaiah text. That's the meaning here. So we had to establish that. This is something that is given by Christ. Okay, first, Christ counseled them to buy gold refined by fire so that they could become rich. Now, the Laodiceans had plenty of regular gold, so that couldn't have been what Christ was offering them. He wasn't offering them more gold to make them more, you know, more physical gold to make them more physically rich. They were already Trump status rich. These people had serious bucks. They had so much gold there, it was ridiculous. It was like, um, I don't know, that hidden city somewhere in South America, that dumb cartoon I watched years ago, El Dorado. They had a ton of money. It was actually a good cartoon. They had a ton of money, so he's not offering them that. That's not what he's trying to offer them. He was offering them what they did not have, spiritual gold. Okay, there's a difference. Spiritual gold represents the the true spiritual wealth and riches that come from salvation and a right relationship with Christ. That's what he's offering. In fact, Peter described true saving faith as what? More precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So he's offering them not the gold they're used to, but he's paralleling from that. You have financial gold. You have physical gold, and that has made you physically wealthy. I'm offering you spiritual gold to make you spiritually wealthy, a spiritual trillionaire, and that would be a reference to salvation, right? Second, Christ counseled them to buy white garments so that the shame of their nakedness may not be seen. Now, the Laodiceans wore fancy black wool garments to cover up their physical nakedness. We wear clothes to cover that up. And yet they were spiritually blackened by sin and hypocrisy, and, and they desperately needed a new set of spiritual clothes. They needed the, the white garments that only Christ can provide, the white garments of his imputed 
righteousness. That's what they needed. When a, when a sinner repents and believes in Christ as Lord and Savior, his or her sin, it goes to Christ. It is given to Christ. It is imputed to Christ. And, and what happens? His righteousness goes to them. In other words, he gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We get his white garments. And we call that the great exchange. That's the theological term for it. And since we are now, if we're in Christ, we are spiritually clothed in his righteousness, God no longer sees our spiritual nakedness, our sin, and he he sees the righteousness of Christ, and he even justifies us and declares us to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and pure and innocent of any sin, any wrongdoing at all. It's all gone to Christ. That's why he was punished at the cross. They needed this righteousness that Christ was offering them. You know, the deal is, is false religion, like what they were involved in, it will give, it's another one of the demonic things here, delusions, but it will give a person a, a false sense of righteousness. That they will think that through their deeds and the things they're doing and their religiosity and piety, they will think that, I'm righteous before God. I'm acceptable before God. It's not true. And all of the, the things that we could do outside of faith, if we don't believe in Jesus, you, you could take every bit of deed and good deed and work in this room and, and, and stack it all up, and it comes nowhere near what is required to actually enter through the gates of heaven. We need an alien righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness. You know, I, I do a lot of great things for Christ, but so often they are still tainted a bit by my own selfishness and my own wrong motive, even as a Christian. Now think of it with the unbeliever. Everything they do is done with wrong motive. They may not realize that. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that you could take all of the righteous deeds of man, all men who have ever lived and will live, and stack them up, and they still don't reach the bar. We need an alien righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. He's the only one who ever obeyed God's law perfectly and did exactly what humanity was required to do back in the garden, yet failed. He did that, thus earning for us a righteousness, right? He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. That's not very fair trade. Think about that. Your sin went to him. How sad, how tragic. That's why he was a just pulverized on the cross because of your sin, because of my sin, and he gives us his righteousness. That sounds too good to be true. That's why the gospel's called the good news. From a human perspective, it is too good to be true, but from a scriptural pers perspective, it is precisely what God has done for us. And Christ is telling them, you need those garments. And as I said earlier, this is not something that can be merited or bought this righteousness comes to us as we trust and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is then imputed to us. So it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They needed these clothes. And if you're not in Christ, you need these clothes. Because right now, it's kind of a crazy thought, but you are laid bare in your sin before God. You need to be clothed in His righteousness. And third, Christ counseled them to buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. The Laodiceans experienced improved eye health, and it's like an infomercial. They experienced improved eye health and greater relief from eye irritation because of the successful treatment they developed, the salve. They had this wonderful eye salve. What a great product. And yet, they were spiritually blind as a bat. They had no spiritual sight. The God of this world, the devil, had blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Christ offered to provide them with supernatural salve that would give them spiritual sight. In other words, to illuminate, to open their eyes so that the, the light of truth could shine in their hearts. That's what he offers them. You have physical salve. I will give you spiritual salve that will give you true spiritual sight. You will see me rightly. That's what he's offering. And I like MacArthur's summary of this. 
He wrote, Salvation is the gold that makes us spiritually rich in faith. It is the white robe that covers our sinful nakedness with the righteousness of God through Christ. It is the eye salve that gives us the knowledge of God's illuminating grace and an understanding of his truth. I think that's just a phenomenal way to summarize what Christ has offered them. In verse 19, Christ made a statement that has led some to believe uh, that the church at Laodicea was not entirely dead or apostate, that there were somehow some in the congregation who were saved, right? Christ said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And some say, well, look, he had to be speaking to Christians right there because they're the only ones that could do any of this or they're the only ones he loves. I mean, by all appearances, it certainly seems that he was talking to Christians here. And yet the immediate context will not allow for such an interpretation. We have to be careful not to sequester God's love to the elect alone. This is something that my camp does all the time. We tend to think that that God only loves the elect, that he does not love others in the world, that he does not have a loving compassion for them. There are different types of love with God. There is agape, which is his deepest, most profound. That is his love for the elect. But there is also phileo, which is a brotherly or uh, compassionate kind of love. Uh, There are plenty of passages in the Bible that show that God loves unrepentant, reprobate sinners with a heart of true compassion. For example, in Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That is a phileo kind of love that God has for his creation. And also in in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, where it says that Jesus what looked at the rich young ruler and he what him loved him and what did the rich young ruler do refused his offer of salvation and went away as a sad wealthy man christ loved the rich young ruler he didn't hate him because he was denied by him he still had a kind of love for him even though he wouldn't repent of his idolatry and follow him what is Christ teaching us here in verse 19. Uh, He is teaching us that he loves spiritually dead hypocritical sinners enough to reprove, enough to discipline, enough to call them to repentance. That's what he's doing. I like how uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones defines repentance according to this text. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty Uh, You are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up your cross and go after Christ. What a phenomenal definition of repentance. So verse 19 shows that Christ loves this apostate church with a kind of reaching evangelistic love, right? He reproves them, which means corrects. He's calling them to repentance. And by the way, that's how it begins with all of us. None of us are automatically saved. We're all lost sinners who, if we're going to be saved at all, it's coming through his reproof and these things. So think of it that way. And in verse 20... We've got one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the entire Bible. How fun. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. As I stated earlier, uh, this statement um, proves that Christ was outside of this church. So what does that tell us? That tells us that he wasn't saying that he loved the tiny minority of Christians, true Christians who were in there. He was outside of this church. There were no Christians in this church. So we know that and we've established that. Him being outside proves it. Now this verse has been used in countless Bible tracts or evangelistic tracts and evangelistic messages to depict Christ as knocking on the door of, of a sinner's heart, right? How many of you have ever heard that phrase? 
know, they cite this verse and they say, Christ is knocking on the door of your heart right now. Well, the door on which Christ is knocking here in the text is not the door of a single human heart, but to the Laodicean church. So you have a context issue here. Christ was outside this apostate church and wanted to come in, uh, something that could only happen if the people actually obeyed him and repented, and that would have been a work of the Spirit and grace in them. The invitation is, first of all, a personal one, right, since salvation is individual, but he is knocking on the door of the church, calling many here to saving faith so that he may enter the church and, and here's the reality. If any one person in there, by the grace of God, heard this letter read and immediately was changed and repented and did all the things that we do, Christ would actually enter through that individual into that church. It would actually, if you think about it, technically at that point, it would become a true church. And I've wondered why it's referred to as a church here at all when it's not actually a church because it has no Christians in it. Maybe it's just because he wrote the letters to all the churches and at one time it was a church. But the point is, is that if a, even a single person at the reading of this letter, that the Holy Spirit moved in such a dynamic, powerful, saving way in the life of that person in that moment, and they repented, if that happened, Christ would enter that church through that individual and begin to do a broader work of sovereign grace in that congregation. But as you can see from the text, this is not about a singular individual. It's not... It is a church that he stands outside of. And so we need to maintain the context when we preach the word. It's not just a... And it's nothing, it has nothing to do with the human heart. I don't even know where that comes from. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Where does that come from? Do you see that in the text? He's knocking on the door of the church. Okay? So, forget about all that fancy evangelistic talk and stick to the word. Notice something that's very important here before we move on. Notice how he said that he would come in and eat with the person who opens the door and lets him in, right? He says, I will come in. Maybe your translation says dine. I prefer that. Mine says eat. In some, it says dine. Maybe in your NASB, it says dine. And the NASB guys are like, woohoo. The Greek word for eat is date now. And it refers to the last meal of the day. What is the last meal of the day? For me, it's at about 10 o'clock and it's ice cream. The last meal of the day is supper. That is what is meant here. That's what date now refers to. It doesn't refer to just any meal to be eaten. It refers to the last meal of the day. What does that tell us? If you let me in, I will come in and have supper with you. What it tells us is that Christ was urging this church to repent and have fellowship with him before the night of judgment comes, before it is too late. When they got this, that evening might have been, in a sense, their last supper after it was read. In other words, his judgment was about to fall fully on this apostate congregation. So he says, look, let me in and we will have fellowship. You will have true salvation. We will have fellowship and there is a tinge of human responsibility here right there is there is an action that is done by the people here that's human responsibility now we go to the conclusion number four the final c verses 21 to 22 jesus says the one who conquers i will grant him to sit with me on my throne as i also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ concludes his letter to the church in Laodicea with really what I would consider the highest promise of all the promises in the letters. This is the, the preeminent, premium promise of all the promises. And I was going to summarize them, but I'm not doing it. But he gave a lot of promises at the end of his letters. And this is the big one. This is the highest one in my opinion. To those who conquer, and what does conquer refer to in the context here? To those who repent, to those who believe, and to those who press on and, and keep the faith all the way till the end, right? Because repentance and belief is not a one-time act. It is our life. It is how we live. So the conqueror in this context is the one who hears the letter, reads the letter, repents, believes in him, and the one who presses on to, toward the goal to win the prize. To that person, to those who conquer, he shall what? Grant them the privilege of being seated with him 
on his throne. This is, um, this is the promise of co-rulership, co-reigning in his coming kingdom. This is the promise of that, but really what it is, is the promise of full sonship benefit. That you receive all of the benefits of being a son of the Father. That's what he's saying. That's what he's promising. In other words, you get all of the, everything that I've listed in the other letters you get, but you also get to be seated with me. And it even says in Ephesians that we are already seated with him in the heavenlies in a sense. But this is the premier blessing of being seated with him in the heavenlies, in his coming kingdom, and yet receiving every blessing and promise of sonship, being part of the triune family of God. We'll never be gods, but we have been kind of brought in. As it said in that song we sang earlier, that we are intertwined in intimacy with him, with the Godhead, which is just phenomenal. MacArthur once more, he said, Christ promises not only immediate fellowship to believers, but also to grant us to reign by his side for eternity. This is a picture of perfect intimacy and glorious authority. It's the supreme elevation of redeemed humanity and a vivid reminder that we do not receive a minimal salvation in Christ, but that we are grafted into God's family and granted all the privileges of sonship in his eternal kingdom. I love that. And what do we see here at the end? Lastly, Christ closes his letter with his classic exhortation to those who have an ear to hear to what? Listen to the Holy Spirit. To he, And he stops it there, but it's included in it to obey. Not just listen, but to obey the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when this letter gets to them, the Holy Spirit is going to be the active presenter. He's going to be the one who supernaturally presents this word through whoever's reading it and be calling some to salvation and others not. Closing. We've established this. It's a reality. It's a fact. The church in Laodicea was dead as a doornail, was spiritually flatlined. But this did not stop Christ from sending it a letter and confronting that church head on. He literally demolished their self-righteous facades and forced them to see the vileness of their apostasy and hypocrisy. He offered to give them what they truly needed and what he alone can provide, spiritual gold, spiritual clothing, spiritual sight, and true spiritual fellowship with him. Right? All of that together really is just code for salvation, eternal life. That is what eternal life is. And he promised to give those who conquer, you know, those who press on all the way to the end, because sadly there's a great many who don't, thus proving that they never actually possessed it. But he promises to give those who conquer, who make it to the end, the high, high privileges of sonship, including co-reigning with him in his kingdom. Christ's letter to the church at Laodicea is a a grim reminder of the cost of heresy and hypocrisy. But it also offers encouragement about the Lord's love for sinners and his desire to bring them to salvation. The question is, what is our true spiritual condition? Where do we land on the spectrum here? Are we like the Laodiceans? Don't be too quick to say no. Analyze yourself. Test yourself. Do you affirm of Christ what must be biblically affirmed to even be a Christian? Is your life characterized by fruit? By a transformed life? Are we like the Laodiceans? Hypocrites who maintain the outward appearances of spirituality and orthodoxy while inwardly maintaining false views of Christ, false 
views of his church, you know, false views of Christian living and so on and so on? Are we neither hot nor cold for Christ? Are we lukewarm? Are we tepid? Somewhere in the middle? It is imperative that we realize that this letter teaches lucidly clear that Laodicean church people are not saved. What is a Laodicean church person? One who has some of Christianity, one who has some of the tenets of Scripture, and yet denies other tenets of Scripture. Some who believe in Christ, and yet he's not God. Some who believe in Christ, and yet he was never a man. That would be the Gnosticism that we see. And you say, well, that's just not me. Well, that's wonderful. But guess how many people that actually is today in churches? In fact, I'm kind of convinced there's more Laodicean churches than there are actual churches. There are so many people out there who think that they are in Christ and aren't. Christ warned us about this in the day of judgment when many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. We prophesied and we cast out demons and we healed and we did all these things. And he looks them in the eyes and says, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Those aren't atheists. He's, they are in a sense, but they're not the atheist that he's talking to there. They are the almost Christians. They are the Laodicean version of a Christian. That's whom he's addressing there. And he says, many will say to me on that day, not six, not four, many What are we? What are we? You know what else is uh, something else that we need to realize about this text? Yes, we need to realize that it just absolutely makes clear that Laodicean church people are not saved. But it, it makes something else clear too, that they can be. Right? If they will drop the facade, if they will repent and put their trust in the biblical Christ who is fully man, fully God, then and only then, what is your spiritual condition? Do you believe in the biblical Christ? The Christ of the word, the Christ, God of truth. He is the one in which we must believe in to be saved. The true Christ. Let he or she who has an ear hear what the Spirit said to the church Laodicea.